Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Exodus. We ask that you would add to our learning, add to our wisdom as we look at the life of Moses and Aaron and all the players in this scenario that you used, that you guided, that you encouraged along the way, even though the road was difficult. I pray that we can glean these lessons in such a way to benefit ourselves, certainly going through this life, so that we also may glorify you and your kingdom and be of help to others we run across. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we were together, we were showing Moses and everything that he came up with, why he shouldn't be God's man to take the people, the Jews, the Israelites, into the promised land. And the reason that he did this is because the focus was on himself. All he needed to do was simply be submissive to God and what he wanted him to do. He just wanted him to go. He wanted him to speak. He gave him these miracles to perform. He gave him knowledge in order to accomplish the task set before him. And he ends up getting to the point where he is really just becoming disobedient. He says, Lord, send somebody else. He didn't want to go at all. And at this point, God's patience was wearing thin. But God, in his grace, persevered with Moses. He kept on going the way that he should because God was right there encouraging him, admittedly, forcibly. You know, he was kind of pushing him to go because he was God's man. He had a plan for him. And he shouldn't have resisted, but it's an example of us. How we resist the will of God. We just won't do it. We just don't feel like submitting to God's will. This is not new. This is not a new concept. It has been around since the dawn of creation of humankind. There was one disciple that Jesus turned to and he said, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And, you know, he talked about he didn't have a place to lay his head, but. Jesus said, forsake all to these disciples and follow me. And one of these disciples said in Matthew chapter 8, verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. We have an agenda, just like Moses had an agenda. He wanted to do something, probably wanted to retire, so to speak. And God said no. And this particular disciple, it's not that his father had just died, He wanted to wait for his father to die, then he could get the inheritance, and then he would come and follow Jesus. That's what he was planning to do. That's what this means when he says, let me uh, first go bury my father. He wanted to get his inheritance before he decided to follow God. And we can run into that trap as well. Let me build my little kingdom here. Let me buy my house, get my car, raise my kids, and see my grandkids. And when all that's done, you know what happens? You die. And God wants to use you in the middle of all of that while you're seeking after the things of the world to make your life good for you and your family. That's all great. That's all wonderful. And God never told Moses, stop taking care of your wife and children in the midst of this. He simply said, come on, bring them all. Let's get with the program and let's go ahead. But again, Moses resisted and we are an example or that is an example to us that we should not resist as well. Now, my question as I was reading this is, why didn't God just do it himself? 
Why did he have to go to such, such a resistant servant and almost force him to go? And we'll read today that he was going to kill him. But why did God go through so much trouble? Why didn't he just appear to the Israelites in Egypt, appear to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, I'm taking my people and you will not stop me. And if you stood up and tried to resist, all he'd have to do is disintegrate him. I mean, he could have just done that and taken his people into the wilderness and had this whole plan set out. Why didn't he do that? Well, as you meditate on these things, you kind of get an inkling of maybe why God didn't just show up. Now, in the garden, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve were given instruction by God. They were told, he was given the task of tending the garden, but he was told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he could eat from the tree of life. Well, apparently he didn't eat from the tree of life, and Eve first partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and gave it to her husband, and he ate as well. And, of course, sin came into the world at that particular point. And then from that point, there was this resistance that developed inside the heart of man. When you saw Adam the first time in Scripture after the fall, where was he? He was hiding because he was naked. And he didn't know he was naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? But he didn't want to see God. As we go through the book of Exodus here, and the people go to the base of Mount Sinai, and God appears to them in the cloud, in the fire, in the thunder, in the lightning, just a powerful demonstration of who he is. And the people said, Moses, you go and talk to God. We don't want to talk to God. So if God showed up in all of his power, the people, in my estimation, they would have rejected him. Now think about it. Do you reject you yourself? And I, I'm in this category too. I should be sitting down as I'm listening to me preach here. But do I resist God when he says, this is what I want you to do or this is what I want you to avoid? My tendency, I'm sure just like yours, is to say, I'm going to do it anyhow. So what? I'm just going to do it. And you, you and I, we all just go forward and do it no matter what God says. At that particular point, we know God's speaking, but we just shut that door a little more. I don't want to hear that. It's just like music in the background, and I don't want to listen to that. I want to focus on what I'm doing. And so we have this rebellious nature, and yet God comes back over and over and over here I am again. It's kind of like the ever-ready bunny. He never stops coming up and talking to you and giving you instruction and directing you. And you know when you have failed at something after you've endangered yourself, after you've risked your very being in some endeavor that you have, you turn back to God and you say, God, I'm so stupid. I did so many things wrong. And he goes, I know. And then we say, okay, what do you have for me this time? I'll give you something else. And so he gives us something else to do. After all, I'm speaking like that because Jesus was a Jew, you know, and they have that uh, Jewish accent. So God didn't show up. And I think that he did this for the sake of his people. Because if God showed up in all of his glory, there would have been this sense that they would have had to have submitted to him and not in a willing fashion. They would have been thrilled to begin with, I'm sure. 
that they were being delivered from their hardship. But as soon as everything was just a-okay, well, why is he going around telling us we have to do this or we have to do that? What's the big deal? Why do I say that? Because they did that with Moses. Who put you in charge, Moses? Can't we burn incense before the Lord? And remember, we have Korah's rebellion for those who remember the story. And we'll end up getting to that as well. But they didn't want to submit to Moses either. They first received him. And as we'll see today, they bowed down and they worshiped. When Moses first showed up, it was all good. And then it just kind of goes downhill again. Now, how do you think Moses is going to end up feeling when God tells him go, he doesn't want to go. And finally, God's going to kill him and he doesn't kill him. Then he takes him to this place in Egypt and he meets the people in Egypt and they get all happy and go and they praise God and they start worshiping. By the end of the next chapter, they want to get rid of him. So how do you think he felt? Welcome to ministry. Welcome to being a prophet. Isn't it just great? I, I don't think it's so great sometimes. So the people didn't want to see God. We certainly don't want to listen to God on many occasions. Our flesh takes over. But God is dealing with us gently. So he brings somebody else into the scene that he wants to use that the people can point to. And that individual is going to suffer a lot under the tutelage of God, as well as under the burden of carrying the people. And so God decided, this is how I'm going to do it. It's the end of the story, and Moses prepares to go to Egypt, and he's going to take his family. Now, in verse 18 of chapter 4 is where we're going to pick it up. It says, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt and see if any of them are still alive, Jethro said. Go, I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let me go, so I will kill your firstborn son, but I will harden his heart. Now, the first question as you're reading this, and by the way, as you read Scripture, you want to ask questions of the text. You want to dig a little bit. When you are asking a question, it's like grabbing a shovel, sticking it into the text or into the dirt, and you're turning it over. You're looking for something deeper than just the surface explanation there. If you go with just the surface explanation, you will end up misinterpreting what Scripture has to say. You have to dig a little bit. For instance, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? You might say, no, wait a Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why didn't he just change his heart? Because God has the power to woo us, to move us in a direction. But it says here that God hardened his heart. What this word harden means in the original Hebrew is to fortify or strengthen. And Pharaoh had a heart that was heavy and insensible. And so he was not going to change. God already knew he was determined, Pharaoh was determined, that he was not going to change. If another God showed up, he was going to pay no attention to that individual. He was going to remain in power. 
He wasn't going to relinquish any of his power. He had two to three million people under his control. Could you imagine if two or three million people left? In San Diego County, at least a few years ago, the population was three million. Could you imagine if two million left? You'd probably say, woohoo, freeway, no traffic. You know, it, it would just be great. But that's how many people left. It would be a huge ghost town. There would be dwellings of millions of people that were empty. How would you feel as an Egyptian? If you were in power, would you let this happen? And happening under my watch, you would say, and you would bear down, you would stop this, you would quash the rebellion, you would smear it on the floor and say, I'll have none of this. And so that's where Pharaoh was. And all God did was, okay, just going to fortify what you're already believing, where you're already going. You didn't have a humble heart. You're not going to change it. This is the way it's going to happen. God already knew what was going to take place in the future. We are just told about it here. This is prophecy before it takes place. God told Moses so that when it comes to pass, not only him would he gain more faith, but the people would have the opportunity to have their faith strengthened as well. Going on from here in verse 24, Moses is on his way, but he's not being obedient. And so in verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched The feet are Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. So, So what's going on here? We're just given this little paragraph, this little snippet. Apparently, he was on his way. We don't know if he was delaying his time going into Egypt, if he was hemming and hawing and saying, I don't know if this is such a good idea. We don't know if that was the case. We don't know if he was going, but he wasn't being obedient because all the sons of Abraham were supposed to be circumcised. And Moses didn't circumcise his son. And so obviously, this made God mad. In the vernacular of our day today, God was ticked. He showed up that's it Moses you're done and he's going to kill him and Zipporah sees him coming and says wait hold on hold the fort she goes and gets a flint knife now you guys know what a flint knife is probably not the sharpest knife in the drawer oh yeah you start thinking a flint knife they didn't even have a steel knife you know think of arrowheads right she cuts off her son's foreskin the poor little boy yeah and she takes the foreskin and you can just see her i can't believe i married this man and she's cutting it off and she's taking the foreskin and touching the blood to his feet you're you know blood this is ah it's just crazy and you can tell she is upset now i don't know why she's upset we're not told here we're not told if it's moses's disobedience we're not told if she's just not with the program could you imagine Moses going back and telling his wife, Zipporah? Yes, Moses. We're going to Egypt. What? Yeah, we're going to Egypt. Well, you know, I tried to get us out of it, but 
God wasn't going to let me get out of it. So I, I'm just telling you, I have to go. You have to go. We have to pull everything out. My family is here. My father is here. Well, we, I don't know if that was the case. We don't know. Now, ladies, think about this. Your husband comes to you. Things are going just smooth for the last 40 years. It's wonderful. You have your home. The children are growing up. You know, grandchildren are going to be there. It's wonderful. Papa's in the other house over there. We have lots of sheep. It's all good. And then your husband says, guess what? We're selling everything we have and we're going to Egypt. Could you imagine going to Egypt today? No way. I think you ladies would be a little upset. I can't believe you'd be packing, throwing stuff in the suitcases and just, all right, if we have to do this, because I have to be submissive to you after all. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? But it's the idea of the heart being submissive, not just the outward action. It's the heart being submissive. So Zipporah very well could have been in this mode of, I don't want to do this and now you're putting me in this position and you should have circumcised our son and you didn't do it. Therefore, I had to save your, you know, she just kind of went in that direction. Poor Moses, he's being saved by women left and right. Do you remember a couple chapters ago how not only did his mom save him, but Pharaoh's daughter saved him, his sister saved him, these uh, midwives saved him. And now his wife is saving him too. I thought he was this grandiose man from Egypt, a man about town. And now he's relying on all these women to save him. Now, was Moses cowering in the corner of his tent, seeing God coming into the tent? I, I don't know what he was doing. Was he laying down sleeping and she touched the foreskin to his feet? As he, I, I don't know what's going on. But you, if you sit here and meditate on this, you go, why and something isn't right? And Zipporah is mad and Moses is disobedient. And that's what we're supposed to learn from this. We, don't, we shouldn't have somebody interceding for us to help us because we're just being disobedient. God would have us just be obedient and things would go so much better for us. But again, that's the fallen nature. And in this circumcision, it was a sign of the covenant. Moses failed to show that he believed in God by not circumcising his kids. Moses was to be the leader of the covenant people, and God was dealing with him more, more harshly. And we know that in James chapter 3, verse 1, it tells us not many of us or many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, this one I don't like. I would like to take a black marker sharpie and just strike this one from Scripture. I would like to say, I'm not going to be judged as harshly as you guys. I would like to say that, but that's not going to be a case. Does anybody want to sign up to be a teacher? Anyone at all? Because you're going to be judged more harshly, more strictly. And why is that the case? Because those who teach know what's going on in Scripture. Now, what do you do... If God has called you and you just can't get the handle on the things you want to get the handle on in life and you're going to be judged more strictly, do you stop teaching or do you keep going and get judged more strictly? Oh, let's see. Knife or fire? Which one do I want? I'm not sure which one I'm going to go to. It's a terrible place to be because anybody who teaches always has to teach above themselves. They are never going to reach perfection and yet 
we point to, the teachers point to perfection all the time. See, this is how you're supposed to be. And the whole time the teacher's going, I'm not quite like that either. But this is how we're supposed to be. And then you have God saying, you were supposed to be like that. I know, but I'm not like, you have this fallen nature. And when you teach your kids the same thing, you teach your kids, be like this, but you're not really quite like that. And so this is the dilemma that Moses is under. He feels he can't do the job and God's going to end up killing him because he's being disobedient and yet God has called him. He said, get on the move here, Moses. And his wife, I mean, it's just turmoil in the life of Moses right now. This is what is required to refine somebody, to make them into what the Lord wants them to be. This tension that takes place, sometimes for some it can be debilitating. And in this case of Moses, it was, I believe. Verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. So he traveled all the way over to where Moses was. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they had heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed and worshipped. And so in this particular case, hardship led to worship. If that's what it takes for you to be a true worshiper of God, would you say, God, if it takes hardship to get me there, so be it. That is a submissive heart to God. If you can turn to God and say, whatever it takes to refine me, to help me to crucify the flesh, please do it. Now, that's a scary thought. But, the people worshiped. They were rejoicing over the fact that God had not forgotten them. And God doesn't forget us. Even though for them it had been 400 plus years that they had been without a prophet, without God speaking, and their burden became more and more egregious under the heavy hand of Pharaoh. And they were wondering, God, where are you? And they were calling out to God, and God answered. And when the answer came, they worshiped. Now, for us, we may suffer in this life, and we may never see any relief. And our relief will come when we see God face to face. Now, to these people, the Israelites, Moses was like God because he performed all these miracles. He brought the word to the people. And Aaron was like Moses. He's the one that spoke to the people. And so you can see the relationship, the dynamic that's taking place there. It was Moses that would speak to Aaron after God spoke to Moses, and Aaron would speak to the elders, and the elders would speak to the people. And God set it up this way, and it worked quite well, at least for the entire existence of the Israelites. So hardship led to worship. In this case, it was a turning towards God, but this is not always the case. It's not always the case that hardship leads to worship. In Matthew chapter 13, there's the parable of the sower of the seed. And of course, we know that there are four types of soil that the seed falls upon. 
The first type of soil is a path. It's a rocky path, a hard path that people travel all the time. And the birds came down, the birds being Satan, and they took the word of God off of the path so it never has a chance to take root in the heart of the individual. Then there's the next type of soil, which is a rocky soil. And there is soil there, but there's a lot of rocks. If you go to any one of the mesas around here, the mesas have that big cobble. If you go to Kearney Mesa, not only does it have the cobble, but there's hard pan underneath, and you get these vernal pools showing up every winter where these little creatures live up there. And then if you go to Otai Mesa, you will see the cobble exposed down there, big cobble pieces down there that you can dig out, and it's very difficult and very little soil. And if seed falls in that soil in the winter, it's just fine. It'll spring up. But once July and August and September comes, that stuff just wilts, and that sun is representative of persecution and when that persecution comes and somebody is enduring it it does not always result in worship it can result in a falling away and it's an individual who professes christ but was never really saved and so when this persecution comes and i think it's getting worse and worse around the world and it's coming to this country to what degree i don't know it may not come in any severe degree even in our lifetimes but it is certainly coming because the antichrist is the one who's going to be in charge and he's going to be given power to overcome the saints and the saints will be killed so the persecution is coming at some point we just don't know when that is coming and there are people who will fall away there are people who will apostatize people who will say i'm not following god if the government rises up against the christian church in this country there will be a falling away people will say forget it. This is just too tough. They overtax me. They make sure I can't do anything. You can't go to a house of worship. These are the things that could happen. This is happening over in the Middle East and over in the Far East and China. You know, they monitor everything as far as the Christian is concerned. So not always does hardship lead itself to worship. But that again is where we have to have this heart that is endeared towards God, where we say, God, whatever you want, even like Job. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. So though you cannot see his hand moving and the persecution comes and it will be by design, there's not going to be anything that overtakes you that God will not be able to deliver you from ultimately, even if it means your death. You will be brought into salvation. That's just how it works. We are in a fallen world and the world is against us. Jesus said, if you follow him... The world will hate you. And it does. I mean, if you listen, if you read on the internet what people have to say about Christ and how they mock him and they they just make fun of these people and they find one of these wacko Christians that are out there and they paint their vehicle all up, God's going to judge you and kill you. It's just, you know... Can you imagine going up to somebody wanting to witness them and getting witness to them and get the biggest Bible that you can possibly get? And you carry that around with you, you know, kind of like this. Maybe you have two editions, the NIV and the NAS or the King James, and you're carrying them around and you're walking with a full robe like Moses and you show up and you say, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And they laugh at you and you take one of your Bibles and slap them upside the head. Do you think you're going to entreat them into the kingdom doing that? And people do this all the time. What is that? Westboro Baptist Church or whatever, they show up and they have all these epithets on people and they they denounce even other Christian churches. I mean, well, that's real appealing. I really want to join your group. You guys seem like you're so nice and family and all. 
And it's not. We're not supposed to do it like that. We're suppo- Even God, when he shows up here and he sends Moses, he simply makes a request. He goes to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So Moses shows up, says, Pharaoh, let my people go. He just makes the request. He didn't bring the Ten Commandments and slap Pharaoh upside the head, did he? He didn't do that. He just simply gave him the information. Let him decide. Then Moses stepped back. God hardened his heart. And Moses shows up again and says, let my people go. Moses says, no, I won't get out of here. And the last time, if I see your face again, you're going to be dead. Okay, I'm leaving. So he just left. And God did all the work. That's how it works. God does the work. We give them the information and let God work on them. But he requires us to open our mouths. Now, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 talks about these people in Israel who were called out of Egypt. It says, today, if you hear his voice, and he's talking to the Hebrew church here as Paul writes this, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 years, saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are going astray and they have not known my way. So I decided on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So God, God's fighting Moses the whole time. He's fighting the people the whole time. And what did he have to do? Now, this is a little lesson for us as well. Had all these people, they were 40 years old, 50 years old, however old they were. There are maybe some who are 60. They didn't live quite as long as other people did. And they were set in their ways, Right? It's not like we used to have it all the time where we baked the bricks, we mixed the straw, we did this for years. It's just wonderful. We had something to do. Now we're out here in the wilderness. Moses, what did you bring us out here for? You know, just complaining left and right. By the way, bricks, you think you work hard? You work hard, right? That's the ethic of America. Work hard. Now, let's see. Let's calculate it. Two to three hundred million... Or excuse me, two to three million people. If of that population, let's say 600,000 were men, and each man was required to make one brick a day, how many years were they there? Was it 430 or 435? Is that what it was, Eric? 430? It's about there. So for 400, let's just say 400 years, 420 years, you're making bricks. Over 400 years, making one brick a day, getting up to a population of 2 to 3 million people, how many bricks do you think you'll make? Some people, yeah, let me see, I can get this. There are some estimates between 100 and 400 billion bricks. So what did they do all day? We make bricks. You know, you bring in the straw, you knead them into the mud, you put them in the form, and you set them out. And by the way, they made more than one brick a day. They did this all day long. Billions of bricks. I've seen some pictures, you know, when they stopped building some of the pyramids out of the stone. And I think they probably made some more after the, I forget which dynasty, but at the 12th dynasty, they were making some of these pyramids out of brick. And you can see some of the ruins of these pyramids out of brick. And they look at the brick, and there's straw in the brick. 
If you put straw in the brick, it's three times stronger than a brick made without straw. And so as we will see, the Pharaoh required them, after all this was taken place, to make bricks without straw, which means they're going to be weaker, which means they weren't going to be able to use them in construction. So he was just being a mean ruler then, right? He just wasn't saying, no, I'm not going to let the people go. He was just being a mean ruler. And as a result of this, we'll see that the people's heart just hardened up. And so in chapter 5, as we arrive here, after Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So he's sitting on his throne, probably leaning on one elbow like this. I'm not letting them go. Who is the Lord? Now, in Egypt, the Pharaoh was considered deity. Imagine if the top guy in Egypt, who is deity, says, okay, your God spoke, therefore, me being deity... I'm going to let them go because I want to be submissive to your Hebrew God. Again, this ain't ain't happening in his lifetime. If he did that, if he said, okay, I'm going to be submissive to your God, what does that say for his people? The millions that he probably has there under his care. What was this we hear? We just read in the... The daily Egyptian that Pharaoh is relinquishing his power to this God of the Hebrews. What is going on with that? I thought he was deity. Isn't he stronger than this other God? So, And then they would have started talking about Pharaoh and his kingdom would have crumbled at that particular point. It would have been over for him. So he could not give up his power. He was considered deity. And there was another deity that was coming in to challenge him. And so he had to be considered tops. So he could not let the people go. And God knew this. God wasn't going to do it. God wasn't going to let uh, Pharaoh not harden his heart in this process. He was going to let the people get out. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword or with the sword. And so this is of little concern to Pharaoh, like big deal. I don't care. You're not going. So your God met with you. What does that show me? That doesn't show me anything. That's not a big deal. And remember how powerful Pharaoh was. He had some pretty powerful black magic. Remember Charlton Heston? Yeah, you remember that? He goes into the land and he takes his staff. Remember, he lays his staff down. And what does it turn into? A snake, right? And so Pharaoh goes, ah, that's nothing. I got two guys can do the same thing. And they come in and they lay their staffs down. What do they turn into? Snakes as well. It's like, okay, you got something better than that? I can do that trick. And, and so there's this battle that we are going to see that has taken place there. And it's it's just unreal. Now, let's spiritualize this a little bit not too much but a little bit pharaoh is a type of satan i've explained this when we got into the book itself and satan has always resisted god's will he's never submitted to it 
He is prideful and he's lifted up in Isaiah. There's some words in Isaiah here and it it is believed by scholars to refer to Satan himself. Now we like to call Jesus the bright and morning star, right? But in scripture, it refers to Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. On the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so that is Satan. Pharaoh is like Satan. There is no other God besides me. I am the king in Egypt here. All the other gods are below me on this particular planet in this particular country of Egypt. And Satan is the same way. Satan says, I'm going to be the greatest God of all time. And the God who sits on the throne now, I'm going to be above that. So he was filled with pride. And he's going to resist God's plan as he has and as he will. He is going to resist to the end. If a prophet from God actually showed up and talked to Satan face to face and says, my God has spoken to me, I'm to tell you to leave my people alone. What do you think Satan would say? I'm going to say it again. Ain't happening in this life. He is not going to be submissive to that. Satan is going to, be ha- is going to have to be taken down with a fight. He is not going to give up. And when it comes to persecuting you, he's going to take enjoyment out of it. Whatever he can do to mess up your life, he's just going to say, good, that's another down, let's move to the next one. That's who he is, and that's who Pharaoh is. And so when you look at Pharaoh, you want to think Satan. This is how Satan operates as well. Verse 4, but the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work, exclamation point. Then Pharaoh said, look at the people of the land of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. So more than likely what's happened is Moses shows up with Aaron, and all the people are following They've stopped their work. There's a big crowd that's gathering all around. And they're going, okay, is, hey, is this going to be it? I don't know. What's going to happen? It's going to be pretty exciting. I can't wait to see. And Moses, or Pharaoh says, look at these people. There's a whole bunch of them out here now, and you're stopping them from their work. Why are you doing that, Moses? He says, get back to work. The same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies. Now here you are a laborer. And your leader, your illustrious leader, has gone to Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says to the taskmasters, you make those people get their own straw. Now, this is how their economy worked. Those in the land of Goshen were the Israelites. The Israelites were shepherds. They were detestable in the eyes of the Egyptians. The Egyptians would be farmers, and that was okay. So they raised the hay and the straw and the feed for the cattle, and they sold it to the Israelites and the Israelites had the meat and so they'd sell the meat back to the Egyptians and that's kind of how the economy worked over there and so Pharaoh says stop giving them straw so they had to scramble 
keep up the same quota and have something like straw and they would get all this stubble. You'd go out and you'd get sticks and stuff and it's not going to be as good, but they threw it into the bricks and they tried to make those bricks and they had to meet again the same quota. And so you're a laborer. What are you going to think about that? Who are you going to blame? Moses. You're going to blame Moses for this hardship. You're going to look to your illustrious leader and say, you're the one that has caused this. You are to blame. They're not going to look at Pharaoh after, oh, it's the way we've done it for so long. You know, it's always been this way. It can continue this way. It's hard, yes. but And they would just continue. And so they weren't getting behind the plan that God had for them. The world will have opposition to your submission to God, just like Pharaoh had opposition to God's plan. Satan has opposition to God's plan, and the world is going to have opposition to your plan. Rather than permission, they will only grant punishment if you insist on living your life as a Christian. I once, uh, when I was in junior college, I had a, a teacher there, a journalism teacher, that taught in my high school that I knew at that particular college, and I went and talked to her, and I was a Christian at that time, and I went in and witnessed to her about the salvation of God and all this, and you could tell she was crossing her legs and she was folding her arms. She was a journalism professor, after all. And journalism has a liberal bent, and she said, well, that's just fine if it works to you. You just keep that to yourself. She didn't want me talking about it to her or to anyone else at that particular point. The world's like that too. Fine, you go worship in your little houses of worship, but just leave it out of the public square. Take it out of government. Take it out of the schools, and that'll be okay. You guys remember the um, football coach? You hear about that? The guy, since he was hired in, I forget how many years. I think I have the article in here somewhere. Oh, here it is. It's right in front of me. A Seattle area assistant high school football coach has been placed on leave for continuing to pray on the field after games. Weeks after the school district warned him not to do so, Bremington High School assistant coach Joe Kennedy, whose suspension Wednesday came a day before the school's final regular game of the season, cannot resume his job until he agrees not to pray while on duty as a coach. The Bremerton School District said in a letter posted online, and this was posted November 2nd, 2015 at 6.07 a.m. So this coach was put on leave because he's, he's praying. He can't be praying out there. And he wasn't praying out loud. He would go out to the 50-yard line and just bow a knee. He wouldn't say anything. I, I told you this story, right? I think I gave you this story. And so the, the students, they said, what are you doing, coach? He goes, well, I'm going out and giving thanks to God. Just bound on my knee, and I'm just praying silently. Can we do that? And the coach said, it's a free country. You can do whatever you want. And so they would join him. The whole team ended up joining him. And the kids started asking the opposing team to join him out there. Pretty soon, the 50-yard line was being filled up with hundreds of people. We can't stand for that. People praying to God out there. This is a school. And so they, you know... Their hair was on fire, and they're, they're saying, stop, you can't do this. And so they wrote him a letter, stop going out there and praying silently. The government is not supposed to make any law infringing on the freedom of religion. And they're trying to do this here. And it's going to court, and we'll see how it turns out. But the persecution is coming. Verse 10, what time is it? Oh, it's right at the top. I hate it when that happens. Okay, well, I'm just going to leave you with this. Moses, 
Moses is having a horrible time. Just a horrible time. He sees what's going on. The people are put, being put under more persecution. They can't build the bricks. They come back and they complain to Moses. What are you doing? We'll see this towards the end of the chapter. And Moses then goes to God. God, what are you doing to me? And God, you know, God answers in chapter 6. But could you imagine yourself being in this position? God compels you to go. Okay, he's pushing you. Okay, I'm going. I'm going already. And so he goes, but he's not being wholehearted in his commitment to God. God shows up to kill him. The wife is upset. The people are upset. I was just fine being a shepherd. And look what you did to me. You took me out here and you put me through all of this. Who wants to sign up to be a Christian? There you go. You still want to sign up to be a Christian. You know, because God... He just works it out, even if it's not in this life. And this life gets worse and worse, especially as we get older and older. But when the new life comes, new body, our friends are made new, no more arguments, no more sorrow, no more at each other, no more hatred, no more discord, no more jealousy, no more fits of rage. But to get there, we have to be refined. Final question I'll leave you with is, are you willing to be refined so that God can do his work? Moses was submissive and saved millions. If you are submissive, how many will God use you to save? How many will get into the kingdom? My prayer for you is that you are willing to be obedient to his will, that you are submissive to him in all things, that you do not seek your own way, but you forsake the ways of the world. If you do this, you'll be filled with joy. If you don't, there will only be turmoil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessing, the blessing of your word, the instruction that you've given us. Moses, your servant, the one who you used for the next 40 years to guide your people. We ask, Lord, that as you used him, to a lesser degree we understand, but we ask that you would use us. Use us to influence others. Use us to make an impact on our community, on our family, on our friends, even strangers that we come in contact with, Lord. Give us the chance to be used, but give us the heart to be submissive. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen.